The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Zaire. I'm Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. Shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. This is the fourth episode in a 10-part series inspired by the people I taught memoir writing in a men's prison. This series will bring you stories written by my former memoir students, as well as formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people from around the United States. Their experience and voices, like those of many incarcerated people, are often marginalized and unheard. To help us get this right, Zaire will be contributing his feedback and commentary throughout the series as co-host along with Andrea and me. Zaire is a poet, musician, and teaching artist who teaches writing and poetry in school and juvenile detention facilities. Zaire has also lent us the awesome theme music for this series. Zaire, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Before we continue, I just want to make sure our our listener understands that we want to be respectful of people who have been personally affected by violence. We don't mean to sensationalize crime or to sensationalize law-breaking. What we want to do is share stories because we believe that stories lead to understanding. And if there's something we need more of these days, it's understanding. On the first episode in this series, which was 115, we went into detail about our motivation and hope for airing these stories. I told my story of meeting Too Tall and some of the other men you will hear from in this series. Please listen to that episode if you haven't already. On today's episode, you will hear two stories by Dutch Simmons, who served two years in a federal prison. Dutch says he's been both a hero and a villain. The same week, his search and rescue gear went on display at the 9-11 Memorial Museum as a first responder. He was sentenced to a federal correctional institution for a white-collar crime. While incarcerated... He established and taught a creative writing program for his fellow inmates. Dutch lives deep in the woods of Connecticut, where he remains a dedicated father, former felon, and a phoenix rising. Also on this episode, we speak with Josh Moreno, former corrections officer who will provide insight into what it's like to oversee inmates. Back after the break. Hey, this is Allison, host of Writing Class Radio. I know there are many of you out there who don't have access to a writing group or someone to look over your essay or manuscript. If that's the case, I can help. I'm available to help you whip your essay into shape. I'll read through your draft, offer suggestions, line edits, and I'll spend time with you brainstorming for the best possible ending. But be prepared to answer the question, what is this story about? Because if you don't know, nobody knows. You know, sometimes it takes more than a bath or a long walk to figure this out. It takes a brutal editor who will tell you what works, what needs more explaining, and what needs to go. For more information, visit writingclassradio.com. Then email allison at writingclassradio.com. Use the code WCR and your first 15 minutes is free. 
Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. We're back. This is Allison Langer, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. Here's Dutch reading both his stories, Farewell Bowie and Prison Within a Prison. We'll discuss his stories once you've heard both of them. My nine-year-old son, Jake, lay with his head in my lap as we sat in the back seat. His mom, my ex-wife, Jessica, had been driving for nearly four hours. Nobody had slept. We existed in the cobwebby neverland between slumber and consciousness. I was on my way to prison. The man who sold the world played as we took the long drive up to the gatehouse. I preferred Bowie's original version over the Nirvana cover. Those guys are dead now. Both saw their impending deaths. Bowie by cancer, Cobain by his own hand. It's a hell of a thing knowing when you're going to die. Maybe it's a blessing. I envied them. I wasn't close to death, but I was about to end our hell. Purgatory was years away, at least three to five, according to the judge. We got out of the car and stretched our contorted bodies. Nobody had spoken for the better part of the ride. There was nothing left to say. Apologies had exploded forth for days and weeks prior. I had been many things in life, devoted father, 9-11 first responder, philanthropist. Now I wore a new label, convicted felon. I was a white-collar criminal. In my haste to build a generational business to hand off to my son, I took shortcuts and failed to protect my clients from my partner who ran off with the money. It didn't matter that I intended no harm and also lost everything. Willful ignorance was not an excuse and it certainly wasn't a defense. None of it mattered now. At this point, hopeful rumination seemed fruitless, especially in the shadows of the gun towers and the razor wire. My family and I walked a funeral dirge to the intake building. Inmates on work detail sized me up in the camouflage of their bland khakis and nondescript faces. I paused before stepping inside and surveyed the surroundings. The gauzy lemon butter sunrise over the farms and the hayfields in the distance seemed stolen from an Edward Hopper painting. The sun-bleached maroon siding of the barn was the last vivid color I'd remember besides the gentle delft blue of my son's eyes. I stepped towards the reinforced plexiglass window and handed in my paperwork. Hunger gnawed at me. Nerves had gotten the better of me and I'd passed on breakfast. There had been no final meal. My attempt to poison myself in order to forget what lay ahead fittingly ended with a spoiled bottle of wine too rancid to drink. Jake's grip on my hand tightened as a guard approached. Jessica aged in front of me. We were amazing parents, great friends, but lousy partners. This was the final straw. Pain and anger stripped her of the ability to process the moment and how we got here. Wearing my best liar smile, I told her everything would be fine, knowing that she now carried the burden of shuttling my son to school and all of his athletic activities, supporting the family and holding her head high around town. Jess was a clip-winged angel who walked the earth. She was ostracized by close friends and family for her unwavering support of the person I once was and had the potential to be. 
we had been through more things than in, in the 20 years we had been together than some families experienced in a lifetime. Miscarriages, sicknesses, my emotional distancing after being a first responder during 9-11. She knew I was a great father. No legal punishment would be more severe than being separated from my son. I worship St. Jessica, the permanently lost cause. She never gave up on me when at times I had given up on myself. She saved my life by reminding me in no small way that I could still make a difference in this world. That leaving it was not an option. I owed her. Words were the only currency I had to repay her, and I was bankrupt. I knelt down and locked eyes with Jake as I clutched his shoulders. I rambled about him, pending phone calls, visits once a month. I used to be his hero, a god in those eyes full of mythic wonder. Standing at the entrance to prison, I was Icarus plummeting to earth and my son was a horrified onlooker. His eyes, flashing aquamarine seas, were uncomprehending and raged with denial. In a few short months, the Green Power Ranger would replace me as his hero. A hastily concocted shrine to me consisting of photos and letters and random ephemera from movies and concerts we attended would languish on a shelf. Jake stood perched on a precipice, crumbling beneath him. His nine-year-old brain short-circuited as he struggled for words, to say something, anything, a sacred mantra that would make this moment stop. He believed he had healing hands. His touch could render my harm asunder. He placed them on my heart, then face, searching for magic. But prison is a place bereft of magic and hope, where healing hands were powerless. The only magic was in the disappearing act that the calendar provided. Abracadabra, and a day passed. Hocus pocus, and a month. Jake's lip quivered and my fingers sank deeper into his shoulders. Do not give them the satisfaction, I gritted through a smile. A sly grin crossed his lips, appeared and passed like the sun peeking out through the clouds during a hurricane. Wrap it up, the guard said, neither gruff nor ominous. His words were compassionless and detached. One minute. I was a waterfall of urgent platitudes. Be brave. Be a good boy for your mom. Focus on school. Channel your anger into sports. I was imploding. A supernova feeding on myself when I needed to be strong. For Jake. For Jess. For me. I hugged him until our hearts touched and cradled each other as I fought back tears. The guard said, let's go. In a fucking minute, I barked. I had been allotted the briefest moment of empathy. Maybe he was a father. Maybe there was an ounce of humanity, of decency here. Later, the same guard withheld submitting my commissary funds for two weeks just to remind me who was in charge. I kissed Jake on the forehead and hugged Jess. I whispered, day one is almost done. The guard led me away and I refused to look back. I love you, daddy, echoed and fell from decrepit institutional walls. Love wouldn't stick there. Jake's words stuck to my heart, embedded in my brain. I raised a fist in defiance, in acknowledgement I was Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club, our favorite movie. I was led into a stark concrete room with a metal bench. Strip. I was already naked. Taking off my clothes felt trivial. At my sentencing, my foolishness, lack of foresight, and failure of judgment was exposed, leaving me a naked, hideous monster. I was a fetid corpse for the press to tear apart. 
Jake and Jess hadn't even left the ground before what was left of my soul was laid bare. Bowie reverberated in my brain. Broken lyrics about having died long ago. I was cognizant of my own death. Unlike Bowie, I had the bittersweet luxury of being born again. Baptized in the primordial ooze that was prison. I'd get the chance the thin white duke didn't have. The fireflies dance magnificently in the shadows of the big house. Electric disco lights reflect joyfully in the razor wire. Pulsating music I can feel, but not hear. It's been 11 days. I can tell them apart. They're unique. I've named them. Oddly, I can't picture my son's face. Like a jigsaw puzzle before me, everything is familiar, yet the details are unclear. 9x6, 9x6, 9x6. I pace this in my sleep. In the great escape, they let Steve McQueen have a ball and glove where he was in the cooler. Who would have thought the Nazis would be more sympathetic than the Department of Corrections? Just give me my pen and notebook. Let me write while I'm here. Let me contribute something to my existence. If I can keep my words straight, my mind will follow. Twice a day, I'm treated to warm bologna sandwiches. When I was a kid, my mom packed my lunchbox with a bologna and mayo sandwich on white bread. They were wrapped in tin foil. Tin foil inside a metal lunchbox that sat next to a heater in the classroom. I gagged every time I ate that sandwich. I gag every time I eat this one. I'd kill for mayonnaise. I'd kill for my mom to talk to me again. Even a letter telling me to drop dead. I wonder if she still cries at night knowing I'm here. She has given up on me. The once golden child was now a disappointment to the family and a black sheep left out for slaughter. The embarrassment is too much for her to bear. My mother doesn't know I'm in a prison within a prison. Maybe I'm just a ghost to her, floating in the ether. It's not her fault I'm here. I would never haunt her. That's the beauty of Catholic guilt. It can haunt her all on its own. She can pretend I don't exist, but the memories will never leave her. Nine by six, nine by six, nine by six. Everything is your fault. Everything is punishable. There's solace in knowing that if I get desperate enough, I can kill myself and still be saved if I praise Jesus at the last moment. That's gaming the system. Which is ironic given that's why I'm here in the first place. I took shortcuts. I thought I knew how to beat the system. I was damn good at what I did. I had an excellent track record picking winners from losers when it came to hedge funds. However, my ego mocked me into believing I didn't need to rely on professionals who could have made sure my business was compliant and that all safeguards against fraud were in place. Instead of paying a small fortune for lawyers to review contracts and conduct proper due diligence, I squandered the money and I was entrusted to a safeguard and build a business with. I lost everything and then some when my partner ran off with the money. Friends and family disappeared, and in the sake of trust to protect those who entrusted me with all they had, vanished. 
It's been just over a year since I arrived at this wretched place, and now I'm in a prison within the prison. Why was I the beneficiary of this stagnant upgrade? I was supposed to have celebrated my 50th birthday in Napa. Instead, I'm here. Why am I talking to myself out loud? I tried to separate two bulls from assaulting a fragile wisp of an inmate who couldn't defend himself. Had he resisted, they would have killed him. Had he given in, he would have killed himself. I stepped in. I broke the rules again. Even in prison, there are rules and systems in place. I don't understand the system at all. The guards laughed and called me a stupid faggot for defending the inmate. This is the reality of my new surroundings. I am a faggot because I defended a homosexual who was being assaulted. I'm neither a hero nor a decent man, things I once was on the outside, but there is no justice in being a moral person here. Morality is measured by time on the calendar. Every day that goes by is a good day. Every day that remains is a bad day. I've earned 30 more bad days in the box. I'm only on day 11. 9 by 6, 9 by 6, 9 by 6. How could I tell my son I stood by and watched? Pretended I didn't see those men brutally rape another man. Pulled the pillow tightly over my ears to muffle the screams. I'm far from an intimidating guy, but with little else to do but work out here, I'm in the greatest shape of my life and stronger than guys half my age. I've never shied away from a fight in my life and I wasn't about to now. I couldn't have lived with myself if I hadn't stepped in. It's hard enough to live with myself as it is. The guilt of my mistakes is like the slow trickle of poison from an intravenous bag. I had a stellar reputation in my industry, was a board member for one of the largest charitable organizations, and was a dedicated coach for several sports. All of that is gone. I'm a pry in my own town. I was asked not to show up to the games for the teams I coached in the weeks before I was sent away. But I can still set an example from here. I can be a role model. I've been replaced by the Green Power Ranger, according to Letters from Home. I can live with that for now. There's still time. The calendar tells me so. It's been less than two years and only two more to go. I'm a good dad. I'm a great dad. I tell myself whatever I need to so I can sleep at night on a metal slab like a cadaver. A good dad wouldn't be here. Catholic guilt rears its ugly head. It's nice to have a friend to keep me company. The fireflies dance, the guilt speaks to me. The fireflies sneak in and leave at will through barred windows. Guilt is my shadow during the day, my blanket at night. I'm living in a confessional box, solitary confinement. I can stand my knees and pray as long as I want without having to worry about someone taking advantage of me. There is nothing left to lose. I can lash out and rage all I want because the sun doesn't rise and set fast enough. Blood on my face is a mask I wear to disguise myself while I'm here. A disguise that began the day I arrived and was strip-searched. Naked. I have nothing left to hide. Nine by six, nine by six, nine by six. The fireflies remind me of the fireworks from the 4th of July. My son was nine years old. He sat on my lap and shook with a delicious blend of excitement and fear. Terrified, then begging for it not to end. I remember his crooked smile. I can feel his body warm and still as I carry him to bed. Yet, I can't see him. But he can see me, this much I know. He can feel my heart beating. It beats for him, not for me. Skips every time he smiles at the Green Power Ranger. 
nine by six, nine by six, nine by six. I am an anxious jungle cat in some low rent zoo, biding my time, waiting for the opportunity to slip through some forgotten door. I can leave if I give them the names of the guys I fought, systems and rules. I know better. You don't give up names in prison. You don't have a name in prison. Respecting the rules is what is expected of you. Never having to look over my shoulder for doing the right thing. I blew that chance once. It won't happen a second time. I'm going to dance with the fireflies. When I do, my son's face gets clear. It's been 11 days. So let's talk about both of them, I think, as a continuous piece, maybe, or we can talk about one and then the other, but, and then how they go together and why we're airing them together. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful writing. My God. Oh, shit. Like my main impression, just my first main impression is like how colorful and and visual his writing is. Like the way that he described his son's like all the colors that he was seeing before he got into prison at the very beginning. And then his son's eyes, like it landed, he landed on his son's eyes. And then he brought back his son's eyes and called them like marine blue seas. Just so beautiful. Talking to that a little bit, what I what I noticed is, uh, like you were saying, Allison, it, the second piece very much feels like a continuation of the first there were a lot of callbacks. The the eyes in particular, when he mentions his son's eyes being the last thing he, he sees vividly. And then in the next piece, he's talking about how he was struggling to remember his son's face, speaking to the effect that, you know, his time in the prison within the prison has had on him. Also, I wrote down detailed because the very the, the first piece was incredibly detailed. Everything, everything was described down to its very last point. Portion. And in the second piece, I feel like in the beginning we were getting the same thing. And then after a while, it trailed off. Things were still detailed, just not quite to the same extent. I felt like that was a reflection of his time in solitary, how it sort of took away from who he was at, at the moment to where it sort of just became him going through different elements of his life, going back and forth between willful ignorance with his situation and then taking accountability for the part that he played in it. All of it just was a lot of clashing in his mind uh, was what it felt like. So Zaire, you're, you're saying that it kind of went from like vivid detail to like a fuzziness. Yeah. That so makes sense because he came from like the bright light of day. And at the end, he's been for 11 days in a gray box. I see I see how you see it like that. Did you guys? What? I'm sorry. No, I was going to say the nine by six, nine by six, nine by six, that repetition I thought was, worked really well here in the second piece um, because we're really getting that he's stuck. He's confined. We get that it's like nine by six. I'm looking around like how big is nine by six? Not very much. And he's sleeping on this metal thing. And you know, 
it's I, I loved his dedication and his commitment to being in there and not ratting people out. He's like, it's it sent, showed me a sense of his responsibility for the whole thing. Like, he's like, I fucked up. I'm going to do my time. I'm going to move on with my life. And I know I've hurt people, but he's sitting there and he's very introspective. He's thinking about his mom. He's thinking about, you know, what happened with his work. So he's, it's representative of being in a place where you're forced to be with your own thoughts. And we feel it and we're there with him because I think of the repetition of the nine by six, in my opinion. Yeah, I get get it. I get what you're saying. It's like, basically it's like nine by six, nine by six, but he also could be just saying like, inside my brain, inside my brain, because that's all he had. And it did get more contemplative. Like the part about the guilt in the second piece, I thought there was a line that really struck me that was so interesting about how his mom, something like his mom. I think it was closer to the top. He gets, and he calls it back basically. So my mother doesn't know I'm in here. Like I would never haunt her, but that's the beauty of like, Catholicism. Catholic guilt. He says that's the beauty of Catholic guilt. It can haunt her all on its own. And then he gets down to his own part where he's sitting there and he says. It's later, like something like guilt is Catholic guilt is his friend. (laughs) It's nice to have a friend to keep me company. That's what he says. Catholic guilt rears its ugly head. It's nice to have a friend to keep me company. Oof. Ah, he feels so guilty. Yeah, I felt like in the first piece, I felt this love for his son and his wife or, you know, soon to be ex-wife or whatever. But I I really admired him so much for just taking responsibility, but also acknowledging these other people that he's touched and that, I don't know, that he's fucked up their life too. And it sucks. I did feel like this narrator took responsibility but he's he does it in a cool way. He's like, you know, no excuses. This is what happened. Yeah. But I definitely feel like there was there was a level of, of accountability taken in the first piece. And I think this was intentional because of the the nature of the second piece and where it takes place and how it sort of is this amalgamation of like his thoughts like crashing against each other that level of accountability shoots up because he has time to argue with himself about what he did and how he contributed to the situation he's in. When he says he can kill himself and be saved if he praises Jesus at the last minute, which is which would be gaming the system, which basically he says is what he did. So I really appreciated that line because I felt like he there was was taking responsibility. How much did you love? I raised a fist in defiance, in acknowledgement. I was Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club, our favorite movie. Couldn't you just picture that with his hand? Like, Absolutely. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> I definitely could see that very vividly in my mind. I want to go back to a line in, in the first piece um, when he was talking about, you know, talking to his soon-to-be ex-wife. And he said, uh, words with the only currency I had to repay and I was bankrupt. That is a very beautiful way to say that you're speechless. <laughs> like that is a, a very beautiful way to say that you have nothing to say. I appreciated that. <laughs> or too. Nothing that you say could hold any weight in this situation. Yeah, he did a great job of not using like typical stuff, mm. which is really what we talk about a lot. You don't want to say this, you know, just basic shit over and over. You want to think of really good ways to really express how you're feeling. So like, I'm so glad you pointed that out. And it is, 
entire body of work is full of those moments where like it could have been said this way, but you definitely understood what he meant with the roundabout way that he said it. And that's a, a very important tool as a writer. Yeah, he had a great balance between show and tell, which we love. I hate show, don't tell. We say that all the time because I like knowing like what's going on in his mind. I like that thought bubble. And he did such a great job of showing us a scene, taking us in and really telling us how he felt about this whole thing. Yeah, yeah really good. An example of the, the show and tell was um, a line towards the end of the uh, first poem when... Um, he gets in and the guard tells him to strip and he says, I was already naked. Immediately, as soon as he says that, you understand what he means. But then he goes on to explain it in greater detail and it just adds to it. Yeah, yeah. No, so good. There was one thing I noticed that I thought was really well done. The way he used magic. This was also in the second piece. So he's like, abracadabra, a day passed. And then in the second piece, he talked about every day that goes by is a good day. So there's this continuity between the two pieces in that line that I thought was very well done. And you guys were talking before about there are no cliches. I, I, I didn't catch any. I just thought his writing was so fresh. Really good. And I thought that was interesting because it was in the second piece. And, you know, in the beginning, he was like, uh, the only magic here is the, the calendar vanish, vanishing, abracadabra a day and, and so on. But then he goes on later on to talk about how morality is measured by that same calendar. I'm not sure if that was intentional, but uh, it was it was a cool touch to say morality is measured by this calendar, but the calendar keeps vanishing. So in those pockets, can you be moral in those spaces where there is nothing, there's nothing watching? And he did. He did by standing up for somebody and he feels good about it. Yeah. So he's doing what he can. And I love that he's showing that. Because he's showing us who he is as a person, his character. So every line, every scene means something. Like he's not just spouting it off. Like we get a real sense of who this guy is. And we, again, feel bad for him. We talked about it in our last episode. It's like, why should we feel bad for some guy who, who you know, gamed the system? But when he's talking about his son and his wife and his human side, we see he fucked up. And we want him out. We want him to get his life back together. He served his time. Now he's going to move forward. I think it's a really good piece because of that. That's why we wanted to air it also, because it's just so well-written. It describes like the human side of the people making mistakes. Um, it reminds me of a line from a song that I was listening to a few days ago. I can't remember what song it was. The line was, it says, I ain't a killer, but who really is until they provoke? Yeah. You know, we all want to believe that you know, we are these people that are above certain things, but you can never know what you're truly capable of until you're put in the situation. And this is a guy, the sense that I'm getting, this is a guy who was put in a situation where he wants to make sure that he leaves something great for his son to inherit. And he just took a few wrong steps on his way to trying to accomplish that. Yeah, but I, I, I know this guy's back on the right track and I'm glad he's out. And I wish the other guys that are in there for so long had a chance. And I hope they do. For more Dutch Simmons, go to thedutchsimmons.com. We will link to Dutch on our show notes. Up next is our conversation with Josh Moreno, who spent four years working as a corrections officer in a South Florida prison. Josh Moreno is the executive director of a Miami real estate team at REMAX Advanced Realty. 
Josh was born and raised in Miami. When not in a suit, Josh can be found in horse country, swimming, or practicing yoga. He loves the arts, architecture, and sports cars. So my name is Joshua Moreno. So I was there four years, about four and a half years. The reason why I started was, number one, I was 19 years old, a year out of high school. I was looking for a quick buck. Like, how can I make the most amount of money with as little skill sets and training that I have? And uh, for me, that was the first option. Not the first option, but one of the, the, the quickest access to having an increase of pay. And I knew someone at that time that was working at the prison. And he said, hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, come on over. Why I stayed was a great question. I guess, number one, I, I really was looking for a way out of prison, figuratively and literally, uh, figuratively in the terms of finances, right? Whether it was in a prison or it was a corporate job, it was getting out of that rat race of the nine to five, Monday through Friday. You, vaunt, you wanted money. You took the job to, at 19. And what happened? What was your first day like? I stepped on the compound within the first four hours. Some guy in my dormitory gets knocked out with a lock and a sock. So a lock and a sock is basically just a long sock with a, a combination lock in it. And I don't remember what the situation was. I don't think I ever found out, but I just remember going into the, the wing and the guy was basically like coming back from consciousness. Um, and I escorted him to the medical unit. And I'm here like trying to have him tell me what happened and who did it. Like I was just completely naive to the whole system itself. He wasn't going to tell me who did or why or what. He wasn't going to tell me any details because if he did, he would get a lot more, a lot worse than a lock in the sock. So that was my first four hours on shift. And it really set the tone to, you know, the lifestyle that it is, how it is being in a prison, whether it's from an officer perspective or from an inmate's perspective. Did you want to quit that day? Were you like? No, I didn't want to quit that day. What was your job exactly? My job basically consists of monitoring and supervising inmates, keeping counts, making sure that there's no escapees, uh, making sure that there is safety and security, that the rules are being regulated, enforcing the, the rules that they have within the system, uh, doing searches, searching for contraband, for drugs, for shanks, for any weapons that could potentially be used, anywhere between 180 inmates to 286 inmates that you're monitoring at any one given time inside of a dormitory, depending on your role and your position, um, the things may, may vary. And basically from there on out, it's um, assisting with the daily functions, whether it's going to the rec yard or going to the chow hall, which is where they eat, or going to assisting with transports for their medical needs or for their religious purposes, going to and from the chapel. You know, there's basic activities that go on within the prison walls, within the defense. It's a whole world. It's a whole other world in there. And it's basically just making sure that it's operating as smooth as possible, as safely as possible, and that no one's getting hurt or escaping to the best of our ability, right? The ratio, you're looking at about one to 100 uh, officers, probably in a dormitory. So on the compound itself, on the prison itself, you have about 1,500 inmates where I work. And out of 1,500 inmates, we probably had maybe 25 people on staff for security. So the ratio is incredibly slanted in, in one other way. And I work for a state prison as well. So just so you know, there's state prison, there's county, and there's federal. Federal 
is where you have the high profile, the, the Pablo Escobars, the, the high profile people that really, you know, the government wants to make sure stay alive and are staying within their prison. Um, then you have county, which is more day to day. You get locked up off the street, you get placed in the county, you get trialed, and then you get put into an actual state prison. But state prison is where people go once they're convicted. It's where you do, uh, it's where you do hard time. They consider it the hardest time because it's state. You're there with murderers and felons and people of all walks of life. And it also has the lowest amount of funding. They have the lowest budget, which means that you're operating with bare minimum, both the inmates and the officers, and you're having to do your job with basically faulty or broken equipment. You know, we would wear body alarms that wouldn't even work. Like we would just wear them just because policy and procedure says to. And if we didn't have them on, we would get ridden up. But they, they didn't work. It was just for show. So um, if it was like that for the inmates, if it was like that for the officers, it was just as bad for the inmates, if not worse, because funding is very limited. And you have to really be resourceful with what you, what you have. I was wondering if there was any one or two or handful of inmates that you like really gravitated towards. Did you get to know their stories? Like what was going on on your human side of the job? Yeah, that's I think that was really one of the biggest lessons that I got. Um, You're really not you're you're encouraged to not know these inmates, not know their background, not know their story, not look up what they did, because you don't want to judge them based off of that. Number one, because you don't want to judge someone from the mistakes they made in their past. And also, you don't want to let down your guard because anyone is capable of anything, which is the exact reason why most people are there. Some of the people that are in prison are innocent. I, I do believe that, you know, it's just. And if they're not innocent, it was just maybe something that happened wrong place, wrong time. Anyone can end up in prison from what I've seen. Anyone can end up in prison. You know, you walk in on the situation and you just don't respond in the best way. And. That's how it went. Or, you know, what we see systemically is that a lot of these kids are coming in and it's just recidivism. You know, it's just a cycle. It's dad did it. Grandpa did it. You know, and it's, that's all they know. They come off the streets and that's all they know. Even though you are told not to look up their crimes. Also, did you? I did not look up their crimes. I didn't even have access to that information. Although it's public information, I wouldn't go out of my way to, to look up the information. Um, but yeah, I would form a relationship, I guess you can say a bond, sort of speak, especially when I was in certain units that I was working for a long period of time. And especially with the lifers, the, the murderers, because those are the ones that want to be as lay low, calm. Hey, listen, I'm living life. I'm going to rot in this prison. I want this to be as enjoyable of an experience for me as possible. So they really help with regulating and managing the, the, the actual dormitory. Because if you have some guy, it happened to me one time. Uh, young buck came in the prison. Hey, listen, it's count time. Count time means go to your bunks, wait for us to count, and then you can go back and do what you have to do. Well, those is young buck, new to the system, new to the prison, new to me, didn't know how I operated. And I was very, very regimented. They knew how to operate within the rules because I was black and white. So anyways, this young buck, he wants to be the cool guy and he doesn't want to comply. He doesn't want to go to his cell. He wants to continue hanging out with his buddy. And, and I asked him, you know, hey, it's count time, man. Go to yourself. And he gave me this attitude and taking his time and he didn't, he didn't follow orders, which is a huge no-no in the system. And I grabbed him. I went to go escort him off away and he pulls off of me, right? Like, like he was really just like, you're not going to dominate me, right? Like that was his attitude, his demeanor. And 
anyways, long story short, the very next day, I wanted to lock him up, right? Like I wanted to give him some sort of disciplinary action for that. And my captain disapproved that. Okay, no problem. Captain disapproved it because he didn't want to do the paperwork, plain and simple. The very next day, the guy comes up to me. He apologizes. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm sorry about the other day. A, B, and C. He looks up at me. He smiles and he has his front teeth knocked out. Completely knocked out. So what happened was overnight or the, the day afterwards, they basically beat this kid for not listening or not complying because the repercussions of that is that I'm going to go into the wing and start giving help to everyone else, start doing shakedowns. You know, if you have someone that's in the back doing illegal substances, smoking pot, for instance, I'm going to come in the wing and search the whole wing. So that person's one action affects the whole entire dormitory. So the other inmates knocked out his Correct. seat. The other inmates right. locked out his seat. I don't know who it was, but it happened within the wing. Right. And it was precisely for that reason, because it delays and it causes issues within the entire wing and the people that are doing time. For a long time, they don't want to have someone coming in, tearing up their dormitory. And I just want to watch TV. I just want to do my time and, and, and hang out. So to answer your question, yes, there are some inmates that you do see the humanity through them and you connect on that level because we're all humans regardless of the uniform. And you start to see people's character. I think Allison's really asking, like, did you make friends and did you have allies inside? No, I didn't have any friends. Um, not even with the officers. I have a question about your mindset at 19. Sure. So when you started at 19, did you have this idea that you were like, did you have like this sort of macho mentality? Did you think that you were like doing really important work? Like, did you, did you have a superiority complex, anything like that? No, I wouldn't say I had a superiority complex. Um, as a younger man, there, there's always an ego to check. Uh, there's a lot of testosterone to check. Absolutely. But for me, it was very simple. Um, it was, hey, listen, these are the rules. We follow the rules. That's it. There was nothing to really go outside of that. And it's also a fine level of attention to detail. Because if you let one thing slip, now it's not a matter of, does this person follow the rules or not? Now it's a matter of how much can I get away with? It's like kids. You let them take an inch, they're going to take a mile. And then they have something to hold against you. Like if it, I know that we read a lot of stuff in training before we started. And they said, if you do this for this person and you break the law or you break the rules or whatever it is, you're yes, you're doing him a favor initially, but you're there's a couple things. Number one, he has that against you. And now he can always hold it over your head. Like if he ever wanted to, like you did this for me, I'm going to tell on you, you can get fired, you can get this. So they have something against, you know, on you. But also they use it to trade in prison. And sometimes like that's why I used to bring in um, notebooks and, and tablets and all these kind of things for the guys to write on and create back in their dorms. And I wasn't allowed to do that after a while because I was told that they could use that for like sexual favors or, you know, it's it's they're trading, they're bartering and it could get somebody killed. And I was like, oh dear, like, like it's things that we don't understand. I was like, what? It's a piece of paper, but I get it now, even though I think it sucks because the people I, I was giving these to really wanted to use them, not trade them, but it ruins it. Like what you're saying for the rest of the population, 
when one person is screwing up. Yeah, I mean, and even what you just said, you said you knew that they wanted to use it, not trade it. How do you know? I don't know. I mean, after a while, I sort of developed a rapport with these guys. And, um, you know, I think there was some scammers right in the beginning. Like there's a couple guys I can think about. They were very charismatic and they were trying, they were always trying to get some information. There was like something I could feel it. But the guys that I now, like many of the ones that are in this podcast series and also um, some that aren't just didn't, you know, whatever that I still communicate with from my class after teaching for three years, like in memoir, you really start telling your stories, you develop a bond. And I don't know, I just trust them. I trust them so much. And I, and maybe it's stupid, but I don't think it is. Like I would have every one of those guys I communicate with on a regular basis to, to Thanksgiving. I mean, that is my dream to have them all sitting at the table and to have this awesome Thanksgiving with them one day. And I'm with you on that. There's a, there's plenty of guys that I can remember that I would feel that way. And there's also big guys that I've seen on the streets and I didn't feel threatened at all uh, because there's a level of respect and trust that, that is built. It's just human beings. However, when you're in the system, when you're surrounded by so many inmates, how do you, you can't, you can't, it's survival. It's survival from every aspect. You can't just say, yeah, I trust him because he's a nice guy and I've known him for a few years and there's a rapport. It's a matter of security and safety. And it's also a psych ward. I was in a maximum security prison that was also a psych camp. So these guys are also medicated. It's, this is my livelihood and you're doing it for peanuts at the end of the day. So why would I make friends with anyone? I have an entire free world out here that I can make friends with. Why would I do it in prison? No, it's not an ego thing at all. It's a matter of security and protection, not just for me, not just for the family that I have to come home to, but also to the officers that are with me, also to the inmates that are with me. There are inmates that I've saved their lives, literally saved their lives. There's inmates that fully, fully respect me and, and, and appreciated me by the way that I ran my, my dormitory because they knew that it was safe, it was secure, it was clean, it was organized, and they could count on that. And that consistency is what they need the most of. And most of them don't have that consistency. And that's the reason why they're in prison, to be told how to dress, how to walk, when to wake up, when to go to sleep, how to work, because on the streets, they didn't have that structure. So if anything, it really is rehabilitating people to be functional within society that are not able to self-regulate over themselves. Were there any bad things that happened while you were in there? Like where you really thought you may be a goner? I remember one time there was uh, an entire, there was an inmate that came to the wing and he wanted to come out into another part, another section. And he wanted to come out and communicate something, some issue that he had. He comes out and when he comes out, the entire, like, it was like 20, 30 inmates that rushed out. And they were basically like trying to start a riot. They were trying to start a riot. And that time it was, it was a pretty scary situation because it turned so dark so quickly that, you know, one, two officers versus 30 men with whatever intentions they are could go very south. And what happened? So eventually we, we heard out the issue that they had um, and it was communicated basically. So it was, it was quelled. What was the issue? Basically, they were wanting to be outside of their, of their cells much longer than needed. Um, and I guess it was something that was been going on previously with previous shifts, that they were just being abused, like kept inside their cells, not being let out. So I guess it was something that was building up for a long period of time and when it happened on our shift, because sometimes there's a miscount and it has to be recounted. The entire prison of 1,500 inmates has to be recounted. And sometimes that takes a while. 
So when it happened, they were pissed and that was their response and their reaction. There was another time in that same dormitory where I'm looking at the, the back end of the wing and there's this guy that's just coming in and out of the cell, in and out of the cell. And at, each time he comes out of the cell, he's even more covered in blood. What he was doing was basically going in, fighting, stabbing whoever, whichever inmate that was in that wing. And of course, we had to go in there and, you know, handcuff and, and quell the situation of the stabbing. This inmate that's being stabbed to death, he, he actually died um, later that, that evening or the next morning. So there was all kinds of situations like that. Um, it's a life and death system, you know, and you really have to be top notch and you really have to run a tight ship to make sure that you're actually getting out alive. And if you're not getting out alive, you also have to be careful that you're not coming out of there with some disease. Because we are in Miami-Dade, and all the inmates that have STDs or you know AIDS, HIV, most of them get shipped down to Miami-Dade because Miami-Dade provides free medication for that. So the people that are up there in the Panhandle or up north or outside of Dade County that have STDs, they ship them down. So I think the, the statistics are like 90, 95% of inmates at the prison I was working at had STDs. But wait, are you talking about you getting into a fight? What do you mean? Yeah, there's an altercation, like the example that I just gave was this inmate being stabbed to death. There's blood on the scene. There's a knife. There's a violent inmate. Someone has to call that situation. If I get stabbed, even if I don't die, but if I get an STD, if I get AIDS from that, I mean, I lost that fight either way. That's not a win-win situation at all. So you're putting your life in danger, yeah, every day when you're there. Which prison were you working at? Dade Correctional, down in Florida City. Can you, t- can you walk us through a day? Like, what was your day like as an officer? Before you even step on the prison, you park, you unload all of your belongings, you, you go through a metal detector, making sure everything is clear. You report to your captain where you get your post. Most people already pre-assigned the post and they work that every day. You go to your post, you load up your gear, you get briefed on the previous staff, you do your count, and then you go to chow. Chow is about an hour, more or less. This is around 4 p.m. So chow starts around like 4.30, 4.45. You go to chow, you feed the entire 1,500 inmate population. Then you take them to rec. You go to the rec yard. They open up the rec yard. They're there for about an hour or so. And you're just basically monitoring. You come back. You know, you're hanging out for about an hour and a half. Sunset. You're doing searches. You're doing, you're monitoring the, the, the laundry that's going on because they have laundry coming in. You count again. And then once the count is released, count time is like a 30 minute process. Basically rinse and repeat. That was my initial as an officer. Um, when I worked confinement, it was a little bit different. You come in and you start showers. So you come in and you're literally escorting one by one each inmate into the shower. They get a haircut. And then you put them back in their cell. When they're showering, you're searching the cell, making sure there's no contraband. And you're doing that for an entire wing. Each wing has 86 cells, probably 30 to 40 inmates at a time. Depending, you know, 80, each wing has 86 cells. So yeah, it's a lot of people, a lot of escorting going on. And then you do that, um, you feed them. So basically it's opening up the flaps, monitoring another inmate that's putting the food to so that way they can eat. And that was that. When I was on the uh, canine unit, it was basically just running dogs all day long. It was running tracks. I didn't really interact with inmates. When I was on the canine unit, we're training for the day an inmate escape. 
So basically, it's me with my canine, my bloodhound, and my partner will go off into running a mile, two miles, three miles into dense vegetation or some sort of track. And my job was basically to go behind and track and find my, my partner. And that's all we did all day long, running and conditioning and physically, you know, making sure that we're physically prepped and ready to go, as well as making sure that our equipment is all, always ready, you know, guns, ARs, rifles, you name it, and being adequate with that. We would train very ad- adequate, very often. Um, and we would qualify. We had to qualify every quarter to make sure that we were shooting appropriately. When I was working the rear gate as the rear gate sergeant, basically my responsibilities were overseeing the inmates as they stepped outside of the gate, outside of the prison to go work, cutting grass, cleaning, so on and so forth. Um, so when I was working that role, it's basically supervising my officers, making sure that they have their equipment, that their equipment is safe, secure, and their inmates are also safe and secure, and they're operating within their current roles in that way. So overall, it's a lot of moving parts. It's a lot of people that you're monitoring at once, um, but it's very regimented. Um, at the end of the day, security is paramount. That's really your most important, your most important goal, security and safety. So it's really looking out, searching for any contraband, searching for any drugs, shank, searching for any ways or routes for escapes, that sort of thing. Do all the guards have guns? And what kind of training did you get for, for being able to carry a weapon? So the term is corrections officer. A guard is someone that you might see at the mall. You give them a, a, a badge and a plastic ID card and they're a guard. A corrections officer actually goes through an institution. They actually get trained. There's actually a, a program that they go through to learn how to manage communication skills, to learn self-defense, to learn how to qual situations, to learn how to fire and operate a gun, shotguns, rifles, handguns. So there's an actual training that goes on before you're even given this uh, lethal weapon. Not all officers actually use lethal weapons. Not all of them carry it. If you're inside the institution, you do not have any firearms. It's a threat to anyone. It's 30 officers versus 1,500 inmates. It makes no sense to give you a gun. You're completely outnumbered. So the ones that do have a gun are the ones on the outside perimeter, outside the fence. And they carry shotguns and handguns. And basically, they're there to make sure no one escapes. Training, as far as training for us, we were getting trained Constantly, you do an annual review, and for us on the canine unit or any of the special teams, I was also on the riot squad as well. We did quarterly training to make sure that we actually qualify and were good with with our weapons. What else is considered contraband? You mentioned you're looking for shanks, you know, drugs. What else? What else do you find? By definition, contraband is basically anything outside of what they are uh, legally, I guess you can say, able to have. So if they're only able to have two pens and they have a third, that third one is considered contraband. However, the pen that you have in your hand can very well be used as a shank. Anything that you see around you that you might see as an ordinary weapon could be used as a, as a weapon, as a shank, as whatever it is. You know, I've seen sporks being turned into knives. I've seen razor blades that were melted to the back end of a toothpaste, of a toothbrush, and used to be able to slice. That was kind of the world that we were in. Anything, a paperclip, anything, literally anything. The guy that I airlifted, that I was on the trauma hawk with, he stuffed razor blades, staples, paperclips, and nails into his belly button. Like, just stuffed it in there. 
no reason at all. Just guy was a bug. He was crazy. And he stuffed these things in him. That's contraband. And those razor blades are accounted for. Or at least they should be accounted for. They get swapped out once a week. You give one and you take one. Because if not, they get lost and they end up in someone's mouth. And later on, you see them slicing themselves up, which I've seen that plenty of times. People bathe in blood because they're cutting themselves up. So by definition, Allison, anything outside of what the state says that they could have, five shirts, two pants, uh, three underwears, anything outside of what the state has issued them and allowed them to have is considered contraband. But what we consider contraband really are the drugs, the shanks, the cell phones which cell phones might not seem like a big deal. So what a cell phone, but a cell phone can be very, very life-threatening. They can plan an escape. They can plan an attack. They can do many things. They can transact over the phone. They can run, especially if they're uh, someone high up within their, their organization, their gangs. They can still operate through their gang members as long as they have communication. So, and if it's not a cell phone, you know, it's many other things. They learn how to sign language and that's how they communicate through, through cells so that way you can't hear them, but they're communicating very well messages, you know, or orders that need to take place. There were hits, you know, there's times where hits are ordered from, from inside of confinement. How does that happen? But it happens, you know, or there's things, times that are um, a note could be considered contraband, what we call a kite. You know, there's been plenty of times where one inmate might come in, we call them orderlies, which are the ones that are used to help us with whatever the operation is, feeding or whatever it is, cleaning, you know, sometimes those orderlies might have a, a message stuffed in their mouth or stuffed somewhere. And that message gets transferred over to an inmate that's inside of solitary confinement. It's contraband. It's a piece of paper with words on it, but it's contraband. They're not supposed to have that. They're not supposed to have any of that. Even something as simple as food could be considered contraband. For example, uh, dormitory goes to eat and they come out of the chow hall coming out of the chow hall one of the inmates has an apple well, it's just an apple what, what harm can an apple do that's contraband you're only supposed to have that within the chow hall when you're eating inside the chow hall oh well, who cares it's just an apple yeah but that apple turns into buck what is buck buck is fermented fruit that they used to get drunk off of inside of the institution so any little thing every little thing <laughs> is considered contraband. Was there one particular job you preferred? Inside the prison, I think I, I most, most enjoyed the canine unit. I was off of the prison grounds. I was out in the woods. I was working with the dogs. That was most enjoyable. Inside the prison, to be honest, I would say confinement. I actually enjoyed confinement the most. Um, once you really write, run a tight ship, a tight unit, it becomes a lot simpler, a lot easier. It becomes a very isolated world. You're only dealing with that population. And sometimes they can be very rambunctious. They can be very disorderly. But for the times that they're not, you're only dealing with that small population versus the remaining 1,500 inmates. What, what items are they allowed to have in confinement? Uh, a Bible, <laughs> a bar of soap. That's basically it. They're closed. No paper, pen, books, none of that. No. The only, the only no. book they can have is the Bible or the Quran, whatever their practices. Did you actually enjoy the job? Yeah, I was good at it and it paid the bills. Um, did I enjoy it? I think you learn to find joy in things regardless of what they are, unless you just want to stick in, in misery and wallow in it, which is not how I operate. I enjoy being tested. 
I enjoy that pressure. I enjoy being able to, to perform as well as possible under pressure. Your shift was the afternoon overnight shift or what? I had multiple shifts. My first shift was from 4 p.m. to 12 p.m. And then we got switched over to 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. We started doing 12-hour shifts. And then when I was on K9, it was 8 to 4, 8 to 5. When I was rear gate, it was 8 to 5. So I worked many different shifts. Uh, but for the majority of them, when I started, it was 12 to 8, 8 to 4, 4 to 12. And then the state transitioned to 12-hour shifts from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and vice versa. Do you know some cor- crooked corrections officers? Some people go into the system to make it a business. Some people go into the system because they have relatives in the system and they want to provide for them or run an operation, sell drugs, which are selling at a high premium, or sell cell phones, which are selling at a high premium. So there's all of that. Now, someone that comes into the prison for that motive, it's not going to be a very good employee. It's not someone that you really want to trust. It's not someone that you want next to you wearing the same uniform when stuff hits the fan. Yeah, crookedness. Again, people are people. <laughs> it happens in there. Some of the people wearing one uniform should be wearing the other uniform. So before we wrap this up, because we've taken enough of your time, what did you learn from this? How has this experience informed who you are as a person and how you move forward in life? I learned a lot about life and really taking appreciation to life. Something as simple as being able to have this conversation. Something as simple as being able to eat whatever I want, whenever I want go wherever I want, appreciating the liberties that we take for granted day by day, our family. I think that's really what I learned the most. It's a school of hard knocks. Not many people will go to prison and, 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 and come out, you know, better than they were. Some people go in and they're worse. But if you really take the time to self-assess yourself, whether you're an officer, whether you're a prisoner, you take that time and you become a much better man, stronger mentally, stronger spiritually. Physically, and some people go into prison, whether an officer or an inmate, and they come out worse. I remember seeing guys going into confinement, and they will come out 30 days later, extremely ripped, strong, stoic, well-positioned, grounded, because all they did when they were in confinement was exercise, meditate, pray, and reflect on their life. Then there are some guys that will go into prison 30 days later, you'll see them come out and they'll be crazy, buck wild, even worse than they were before. So the time that I used when I was there was to do exactly the same, the first of those two, finding myself, finding my strength, identifying who I was. And then once I was able to do that was when I launched myself into business. So as an officer, I can do it and I did it. As an inmate, they can do it too. All matter of choice. Has your impression of the prison system changed since you worked there? It's a business like any other. You need to fill those rooms in a hotel room. Same thing in prison. You got to fill bunks. And it starts with the judges and the police officers and everyone that's on the street, making sure that they have plenty of customers to feed into the prison system, which a lot of those prisons. And it's true once they get in there, you've got the commissary, you've got the food distributors, you've got the you know, um, phone people, the JPay people, everything is a privately owned business that is now inside prison. And none of those people want this to end. And it's a monopoly on top of that because you only have one phone provider. You want a pack of uh, 
dollar Skittles is going to cost you three. It's, it's ridiculous. And you have free labor as well because you lock someone up for driving under the influence or for driving with a suspended license and they get locked up and now they can go work for free. So now that's $50,000 that you're making off of the city, off of this one person or these five people's back. It's a business. And I've seen every angle of this prison, of the prison system. And when I realized that it was a business, I said, you know what, Josh, <laughs> I'm making profits for someone else. I might as well do it for myself. When you told your first job after this, hi, I used to work in like, what'd you do before this? And you told them, what was the reaction? Yeah, everyone gives me the same reaction. Oh my gosh, you worked in the prison. Oh my gosh, you worked in a prison. Ah, it is what it is. I mean, to me, it's second nature. I could put on some boots and some, some, some BDUs and go right back in there. You know, not because I want to, but because mentally I'm conditioned to it. I can adapt. And that's really the basis of the whole conversation. Adaptivity. Those guys in there just adapted to their environment. and That's where they ended up human condition. I just had such a different experience only because I would go in just for one class and come back out and we were writing about our stories. So like I was more their friend. I wasn't breaking rules, like not too many anyway. For me, I I just really wanted to be with them because probably because they're, they were so structured and they were so polite and so kind to me. Like the officers that came in and they, you know, did count and whatever, blah, blah, blah. They were very strict and steady and, you know, did their job and got out. But we could have fun and play around. Like, I was the good guy. Yeah, I remember seeing the volunteers all the time. I mean, you guys probably see maybe 5% of the institution of what really goes on. I remember seeing it like, yeah, they come here, sing Kumbaya, and they leave an hour later. You guys have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you have no idea. And not only that, but you're dealing with the, the small percentage of the population within that population that is looking to better themselves. So... Yeah. yeah. I mean, what you saw was nothing, nothing compared. So yesterday on my way to go um, visit my grandmother, I ran into a guy who had literally just got out of prison uh, the day before. He had been in for six years and he was asking for change so they get the bus to go to the nearest shelter. So obviously, I, I mean, I didn't have any, I didn't have any cash on me, but I went to my car and tried to scrounge up as much change as I could. Uh, my mother was with me and I sat with him for a while when she went to the store to see if she could get him a bag to put his stuff in. I, you know, I wrote my number down on a piece of paper and told him once he found the phone to call me because I, I think I know someone that might be able to give him some work. But it just, it's, it strikes me how, how difficult it is. He's not from Florida. He, he got transferred to a prison down here. And then when he was released, he was released into Florida. And he doesn't know anybody down here. And he doesn't have a phone. He can't call his family. And I just wanted to, I know you said that you've, you ran into some people that uh, were in while you were working. How do you feel that that could be, that process could be made better with helping people who have been in for all this time to reacclimate to life? And uh, how can we be better with with providing you know, facilities for them. Recidivism is the whole point. Repeat customers is the whole point. And also there are some things in place. It's all a matter of choice. The resources are there. I learned how to read, not literally how to read, but I learned reading and self-education when I was working in the prison. So it's a matter of choice for some of these inmates to really make that decision to say, you know what, I'm going to come out of here better. 
There's some that never make that choice. And they say, you know what, how can I get back on the streets so I can get back to trapping so I can get back to doing what I was doing before. And guess what happens? They get locked up again and the whole system cycles all over. The system is designed to be broken. And two, people choose to continue in that cycle. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your experience with us. I mean, this is invaluable. We get pissy about the officers, but there are some really good ones and there are some that are really trying to do good things. And thank you for doing that. So interesting talking to you. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you, Josh, for coming on the show and sharing your experience with our listeners. In the next episode in the series, you will meet Rashmi Aran, who spent one year in prison. She shares what going to prison did to her marriage, her family, and her life. Rashmi's essay was previously published in the Washington Post. Thank you, Dutch, for sharing your stories, and thank you for listening. Writing Class Radio is produced by me, Allison Langer, Zaire, and Andrea Askwitz. Also by Matt Kundle, Evan Serminski, and Courtney Fox at the Sound Off Media Company. Theme music by Zaire. Additional music by Koi and Marnino Toussaint. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, essays to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, you can get them all in one place. Our three-part video series for 50 bucks. Click video classes on our website. And if you want to be part of the movement that helps people better understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon. For $10 a month, Andrea will answer all your publishing questions. For $25 a month, you get Andrea and my first draft weekly writers group where you can write and share your work. Tuesdays, 12 to 1 Eastern Time. Go to patreon.com slash writing class radio. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. So look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.